I think if I were if I were constructing sort of an argument for what am I going to accomplish over the next four years, it's basically I'm going to come and rescue these kids that Andy Bashir left behind. I don't. Uh... Attention, passengers. We ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Yes, it is, and we're back. Uh, thanks again to Scott Jennings for hosting his own podcast last week with uh, One Secretary time of State. I did it, Michael Adams. <laughs> it had been a long time since you'd done an interview. It, yes, I, it had been a while, but we'd had a lot of great uh, conversations about the midterm elections, and so. Yeah. Uh, but I was glad Mike came. I thought Mike was acquitted himself very well on the pod here. Yeah, he's a he's a national elections expert. He's really acquitted himself. Uh, not just great in Kentucky, but he's, he's way known across the country. And I, I'm hoping that some other states can learn from Kentucky's great example and perhaps apply some of those lessons in future elections so we can actually have votes counted fairly, accurately, and uh, timely. timely. I mean, I mean it's exactly. the thing. We know who wins on election night. It's crazy in other I mean, states. But anyway, hey, Sean Southard. Hey, Joe. Hello, Jared Crawford. Kevin Grout not here this week. We are recording this, by the way, on Wednesday, November 30th. Mm-hmm. We do miss so. Kevin, by the way. We should we should acknowledge that. Kevin. Yeah, I'm, on the, I'm on the fence about it. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll vote after the podcast here and see how it all goes here. Uh, Going to be talking a little bit later about um, uh, both Scott and Sean quoted in a, a national article about the uh, Kentucky gubernatorial primary in 2023. It's uh, soon to, I guess it's already commenced but in, in many regards, but at the same time, the, the heart of it hasn't, isn't quite here. I wanted to talk to Scott about the uh, presidential primary season after the midterms and what we learn about uh, those positionings as a result of what happened there. And we'll get to uh, Georgia momentarily. But I want to start, Scott, with uh, I was watching CNN the other day. Mm-hmm. So I watched that because you're on CNN. Yep, yep. And it, 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 it reminded me of my days as a journalist when I used to – if ever there was like a situation that happened where there was a – a national leader, a someone of the same party. Mm. And then I would go then to the, somebody of that same party and say, well, what is your response to this? And they would look at me and say, why should I have a response? That, that, that I'm not that person. Right. I remember one time it was the mayor of Louisville, and there was a situation with Barack Obama saying something, okay. went to Greg Fisher, whatever. And, and I said, and as a spokesperson said, well, why should we have a response? I said, well, as a reporter, I'm thinking it's the same party, and, and yeah. this is why I'm asking you. So this past week... You had the situation with, and frankly, I forget the names. I've never heard of this Fuentes guy in my life. Yeah. The only Fuentes I ever knew was Daisy. I don't even know her, but I was aware of the name. I met her once at the Kentucky Derby. Is that right? Years Mm. ago. I don't know. You might need to kind of distance yourself from (laughs) this at this point. I had never heard of Nick Fuentes until uh, a while back when Marjorie Taylor Greene wandered onto the stage at his event and then claimed she had no idea what... She was there for. That's the first time I'd ever heard, and I hadn't thought about it since. And then, but then John Berman asks yeah. you. But what was interesting, and I think John Berman does an overall fine job on CNN. But his his question to you, it was kind of prefaced with like, "Well, all Republicans know this person." It was sort of like this. This, yeah. I mean, this is someone who's known to Republicans. No. He's. I'm like, I don't know. You're taking these fringe characters from way out in the, the stratosphere, and you're, and then you're saying every Republican needs to answer for this now. And and then I thought it to myself again in my moment of self acknowledgement. I was the same way as a journalist, where I would try to pin you with yeah. this extreme figure, and then 
get your response to it. But anyway, what, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I did two straight nights of panels on this with Berman was hosting AC360. And by the way, I have to say, John Berman is a pro. I mean, great guy. And uh, I've really enjoyed getting to know him over the years in his various... I mean, he hosts all across yeah. the spectrum. But basically, the setup was how you described it. It's it's the assumption that all Republicans know who Fuentes is, which I don't think is true. Um, but everybody does know who Kanye West is, I think. Uh, and you don't, but everybody else does. <laughs> this is specifically <laughs> specifically Joe does. This is actually a true statement. Yeah. Um, how could then, you be so heartless? In the in the que- <laughs> I don't know what that Shots is. other ladies and gentlemen. Good job. And then the question to me was, you know, to, to, to try to def- you know, how are Republicans handling this? And then at that moment that you saw, neither Senator McConnell nor Kevin McCarthy had put out statements. And I correctly predicted that they were just getting back to Washington. They were meeting with their conference members and then they would say something the next day, which came true. Both of them said the views expressed by Fuentes and Kanye West have no place in the Republican Party. Uh, but, you know, even that wasn't enough. I mean, that, that's the problem with stuff like this is there there are some people who cannot be satisfied right. no matter what you do. I don't think Mitch McConnell has uttered Donald Trump's name in public since his floor speech during the impeachment trial. I don't I, – I have to check, but I don't think he has actually said – so when he talked about this dinner, he said anybody, you know, meeting with people who have these anti-Semitic views or – not going to be elected president. I mean, it was obviously what... So then the reaction to that was, whoa, he wouldn't directly criticize Donald Trump. Well, no, he's got a pretty clear pattern of ignoring Trump and not uttering his name and depriving Trump of that attention. Well, and also he he, he walked into it head on at his weekly presser. He didn't wait for a question to yeah, get asked about yeah, it. Right. He, he wa- approached the podium and he said, let's start with this. Let's start with this. Yeah. Right. And, and so he did. Yeah, he did it right. And then McCarthy's response to it was um, a little muddled because he actually got it correct saying there's no room for these views in the Republican Party. Then he said, I think Donald Trump, uh, you know, uh, condemned this guy four times or and then he said or said he didn't know him. And I think in McCarthy's mind, he was saying Trump had said four times that he didn't know Fuentes, but. So now, so then the follow-on from that is to criticize McCarthy for trying to basically cover up for Trump, which I, right. I don't think he was trying to do. Here's the bottom line on this for me. Donald Trump said, oh, he was just uh, coming along with somebody else that was having dinner there. Well, that's someone else is just as bad. <laughs> Kanye West has been anti-Semitic, and everybody knows it, and he's been, you know. And by the way, he ran against Trump and is apparently planning to run against him again. Why are you having dinner with your well, opponent? He did, he did ask Trump to join his ticket as his vice president. <laughs> and so, is this true? Yeah, that's that's allegedly what happened in the I, conversation I, I, was yeah, that he asked him to be his running mate. But but the defense of well, I mean, what am I? I mean, how am I supposed to prevent myself from having dinner with white nationalist anti-Semitic bloggers? I mean, I couldn't possibly be expected to 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 police who I have dinner with at my own club at my own house. It's not a good look, and it couldn't have come at a worse time for Trump. Because after the midterms, people are unhappy with him, obviously, thinking about moving on. You have DeSantis rising. You have Pompeo out there, Pence, Youngkin, others. And and, and I do believe there is a real sentiment like, maybe we should move on from this guy. And then this happens. And 
the worst part of it is well the worst part of it is these people are absolute lunatics mm-hmm. and it's hateful and we shouldn't be countenancing this at all the political problem for trump is is like this was like a reminder of all the other times he did something in this bucket and every Republican had to go out and eat, you know what, and defend it. And right. here's the deal. He's not the president anymore. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, you know, Republicans don't feel like they have to defend it now. And it was a reminder of all the times that you hated having to defend it in the first place. Came at a bad time for Donald Trump. Now, ultimately, this is another sort of log on a, what I think is a, somebody on CNN on, during my election coverage described what's happening to him as like a house burning. It doesn't all just go up in flames in 10 seconds. It's sort of a, it's burning and eventually it will collapse on itself. That's how it was. And I thought, that's an interesting idea. But this, to me, is an example of why that might be right. This is another sort of room is now engulfed and and eventually the house is going to burn. And so um, does the president, former president, have the capacity to put it out? Not if he keeps doing stuff like this. Yeah, he was fortunate to have credible allies because of his the presidency yes um but but ultimately and we saw this of course especially even more pronounced between when he lost the election and january 6th you know increasingly surrounding himself with fringe weird yeah out of just out of touch people yeah and those are the only people who are still with him yeah you know at this point well you you have to wonder too like if you were the president and you want to be the president again, you don't get the same, oh, it's my first day here. How was I supposed to know this is how it works? I'm not a politician. No, no. You are the establishment. You were the president. You've run for president twice. You served in the White House. You don't get the whole, oh, hey, I mean, I'm not a politician. I don't know anything about this business. He's no longer an outsider. Yeah, he is the establishment. And when you are the establishment, you don't get the benefit of the doubt on being uh, from a different world. You don't get it. Now, and I don't know that he fully understands that, that people are not going to give him the benefit of the doubt because, hey, I've never done this before, like they did way back in 2016. He wants to rekindle that sort of, um, uh, you know, I don't know what the right word is, aura or whatever that, that, that he had in 16, out total outsider coming in, you know, bull in a china shop, wrecking the politicians. Mm-hmm. He is the china shop. Now, and the other guys, DeSantis, Youngkin, other they're the insurgents. But I don't think he I don't think he fully gets that yet. You know, the other thing about all this too, and just in terms of the overall uh, attempts by critics uh, to conflate everything that Trump did as president into all the extreme stuff too. There are some things that the Donald Trump presidency just pointed out. When he, he there there was a need for the bull to come into the China shop. For instance, someone to be tough on China, or, or I'm just giving you just one brief example. My point being is, is that not everything that not every policy directive that happened during the Trump presidency was horrible. Yeah, you know, and and there was there was there was policy outcomes there. There are some things that Biden even hasn't reversed. Oh, a lot of things. You know, well, this so. is a good question. Um, I was on um, Julie Mason's show on Sirius XM this morning, and she said, "Do you think that after Trump?" the Republican Party will sort of do a factory reset on its platform and go back to being the, the Republican Party of, of, you know, 20 years ago in terms of its... And I said, no, I don't expect that. Even if Trump isn't the nominee, it's a good discussion for us, 
I don't expect I don't expect us to go back on some things that we've now adopted as part of the ethos of being a Republican. And 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 and, and we don't have to. You you can do that without Trump. And that's that's the thing. That's what primaries are for, well, you know, it, sorting out those kinds of topics. And some of these things, like take the, the trade issues, for instance, within, with that Trump allegedly brought to the table. There have been those tensions within the Republican Party and the conservative movement all the way back to Calvin Coolidge. Oh, yeah, long before him. Long before yeah. him. And so what Trump did was synthesize some of these older trends, older uh, traditions within conservatism. Uh, which has been more affiliated with, if you're a real student of conservatism, you would call paleoconservatism, not like the diet. But, uh, you know, th- there's these trends out there, particularly on trade, per- particularly on a fear of, of uh, unrestricted, unfettered capitalism. Uh, immigration. Immigration. I mean, while, while the party – during my time serving George W. Bush, the, the, the base of the Republican Party was never in the same place – that Bush and John McCain right. and others were. Now, they went along with it because their leaders were doing it. But there was always, I mean, you go out and talk to rank-and-file Republicans, they didn't like it. Well, and they look, didn't like it. And look at some of the stuff that's going on with the talk of this rail issue uh, in the unions. I mean, Marco Rubio's out there. Uh, you know, he, He's been out in, in support of Amazon unionizing warehouses and things. And so there are some trends out there that, that predated Trump. He was just the face of it. He synthesized that's them right. all largely because he was surrounded by people that I'm not so sure that are going to be around him anymore uh, through this campaign. I think they've largely moved to DeSantis. The article hasn't come out yet, and I'll be anxious to see how it comes out. But I talked to um, Philip Wegman of the Washington Examiner, who's a really good reporter. And he was asking me a question this week about whether I thought DeSantis or other governors, if they run against Trump, will use their actions on covid as a vector of attack against Trump. You know, Trump, mm-hmm. essentially the line of attack would be, you went along with Fauci and you just sat back and let Fauci run wild. Meanwhile, we made all the right decisions right. on behalf of freedom and liberty. And, and we had a really interesting conversation about it. But but to your point, Sean, that that is another sort of evolution of, uh, you know, where where are we headed right. with if if we are to have a post-Trump party, where is it going to be headed? That That is going to be one of the big topics. Yeah, it, it we talk all the time about like sort of uh, who's in the tent how big is the tent who's inside the tent like you know all those sorts of things it feels like the party is is just wants to have a big tent where the trump people who love trump and still love trump can come on in and we're going to embrace the the ideas and the the policies that you cared about we're just going to leave that one guy outside the tent that's it that's just just the one guy everything else you believe in everything else you love come on into the big and nick party fuentes tent. He, he needs to go he needs yeah, to go yeah, away yeah but uh, what but what is the republican party jared with with this crazy uncle or whatever else that, that who's not allowed in how yeah. how does it move forward i think it's tough right i mean i think there's people i mean there's probably people who voted for Obama twice who voted for Trump who their sole identity within the party is Trump now right they don't have these sort of like the way Sean and Scott have been lifelong Republicans and sort of grew up you know in the party and so if their one identifying factor with the party is Trump and not necessarily a policy but his attitude no I I don't know I don't I don't agree with that because I think the perception of Trump was that their perception of Obama during those years was well the Democrats are the pro-union pro-working class, so we're yeah. voting that way. In the 16 race, some of them came over to Trump because the perception was he was the pro-working class guy. And so 
I, I disagree. It was the, I mean, maybe they like the attitude, but some yeah. of it just had to do with, if you listen to Trump and you listen to Hillary Clinton, which one of these people do you think is legitimately yeah. in touch with how a working class yeah. person would see the world? And so yeah. that's why I think some of these politicians now, like you mentioned Rubio and others, that's why they're trying to adopt these, you know, in some cases pro-union well, stances. And I think tra- I think the trade stuff in particular, yeah. trade has always been a simmering issue underneath our political discourse in this country on both sides of the aisle. Oh, NAFTA. NAFTA I mean, has yeah. never, I mean, apart from after, it, like immediately after it passed, I mean, Scott, you know polling yeah. better than I have, but like what was NAFTA's approval rating over the course of like... Oh, I, over 20 plus years in politics in Kentucky and seeing random questions like, you know, what are some of the biggest problems facing the state? Unprompted. I never saw a survey in which NAFTA didn't come up in some meaningful way. Like... And, you know, even as the state was getting more Republican, like, well, that NAFTA sucks. That, you know, and then Trump goes in and renegotiates it and cuts a new deal. Kelly Craft from Kentucky was in the middle of that as ambassador to Canada. But that was but that was seen as righting a wrong. Like, it, mm-hmm. I mean, otherwise yeah. conservative people in Kentucky believed that free trade and uh, so, agreements yeah. like NAFTA were inherently hurting them. And, and the in the pure free market free trader was like, no, 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 this is great because Canada is Kentucky's largest trading partner. You know, but the belief was, to your point, Sean, the belief was, no, no, no this hurt us. And so that's like to the policy point, Jared. Yeah. I just want to push back on that just for a second because I think that that issue more than any a lot of the other issues that came up in the sixteen race was was one that that a lot of voters, uh, especially in Middle America here in Flyover Country, blue collar workers. They have always hated NAFTA, and they've always been skeptical of trade agreements. Yeah, I guess one of the things that I see is is I think of somebody like J.D. Vance, who spoke a lot about this, about that the Republican Party didn't have an identity. It was just, we cut taxes. And it was like, well, what else do you do? It was like, well, we, we cut taxes. And it was like, well, well what about the, the working class people and sort of the J.D. Vance story? Like, what do you care about that? And it felt like J.D. Vance didn't really connect with voters until he got that Trump endorsement, because Trump is still that, like, one – you know, he's that one signal to a lot of people of like that guy's on the right side here. Even if they're speaking the same language, the way JD Vance did for a lot of his campaign, a lot of his life, frankly, to say like we're not reaching out to working class voters, we're not reaching out to the the guy who worked at the Levi's factory for for mm-hmm. thirty years, and that's now in in Brazil or whatever. And so I I, I think it's going to be tough to to find those people who have that same vein, but. Trump is their one kind of signal. To He's like them. a validator. Yeah, and in so many different ways. Yeah. And so I, I wonder how the party gets those people inside the tent, uh, even if a DeSantis or somebody else is speaking their language, but they're, they're sort of waiting around for like, yeah, but what about Trump? And you, so I'll, I'll be interested to see how that plays it's out. It's an interesting question about, um, about these policy topics because you, know, you go through a primary. If Trump is not the nominee – you know, whoever is, whether it's say it's DeSantis, say it's Yunkin. I mean, they will put their own imprint on the party's policy direction. And to the extent that it's largely the same as Trump or maybe a little different, that, that will be a fascinating question. The other thing about, you know, what, what is what is the identity of the Republican Party? I, this is an interesting topic for me. I'm a conservative. I don't actually necessarily need the government doing a whole bunch of stuff all the time. (laughs) But I do think on the nominal right right now, there is this idea that we need to advocate for the government being as activist as the Democrats do. Like they want the government Mm -hmm. to be bigger and involved in your life and involved in your business. 
And now you have Republicans who are advocating yeah. for that. And yeah. to me, more than more than left and right, it's it's a Republican. It's just a question of, you know, do you want your government to be big and involved in so many different aspects of your life? For most of my career, the Republicans have been arguing for a restrained or smaller government. But some of this, like uh, even as they're as they're debating the, uh, and I don't know when it's going to get solved, but even as they're debating the solution to this rail worker issue, mm-hmm. you have Republicans out there wanting the government basically to intervene here in a in a heavy handed way, and on behalf of what the workers are asking for, it, it it's an interesting sort of just philosophical debate in and, our society. And this has really been going on since. Trump lost. Uh, there has been this explosion on the right, and that we you could spend hours delving into what the so-called new right is pitching themselves as, or the uh, the so-called integralists that want to reintegrate an established church into uh, into state governments across across the country. I mean, there there is a proliferating variety of views right now, uh, and a very uh, active uh, and healthy debate about what conservatism is. And it, Scott's absolutely right about there are people on the right now that are actually encouraging that, well, the administrative state isn't going away. We should use it for conservative ends. Yeah. We, should, we, should, we should get into the mud with what the Democrats and what liberalism has. We should even use the judiciary the same exact way the Democrats have used it. When our ideas are not popular, they should be imposed through the judiciary on the country. And so there's a, there's a really – strong and active and robust debate going on right now within the right. And it's and it's interesting because um, some people, I think, f- believe Trump was kind of Tea Party 2.0. Uh-huh. But what Trump and then this populist uh, wing advocates for, this more expansive activist or imperial government, is the opposite of what the Tea Party guys, they, right. were, at, they, were, they were against the government. They wanted... They, Taxed enough already. I mean, they they wanted restraint. And what the new populist right seems to argue for is activists just on behalf of the stuff that we like, not what the Democrats like. Well, Trump was willing, back to your bull in the China shop, he's willing to, since he's willing just to break things down, you can build things back up the way that you want them. But he was was the agent to make, just to upset everything. Kind of just, you know, just, just tear it all up. The question is, in America, have we just reached a level of expectation that the government is going to do a bunch of stuff. And so now everyone's just decided to acquiesce. Okay, fine. We'll make it do our stuff, and they'll argue for their stuff, and we'll see who wins. Is there a room, is there a corner in American politics for saying, why does the government have to do any much of anything? Well, if you're if you're interested in any more uh, conversations, like deep dive or to get a flavor of what some of these these people are thinking uh, on, the, on the right, you can look two places. One is the American Conservative published a statement of principles from this new group called the National Conservatives, the NatCons, as they call themselves. And so you can look at that. Uh, there was also an essay a few years ago in something called First Things, which is a publication on the right, and the title of it was called Against the Dead Consensus, and it's a group of right-wing thinkers that attacked, quote, zombie Reaganism. Mm. And so I think that it's a very interesting discussion, uh, and, and it really is something that I think that has not happened in the conservative movement since uh, the advent of uh, 19... 19- you know, after after uh, Barry Goldwater and, and Ronald Reagan, conservatism became triumphant within the Republican Party. You said something in passing, and I clearly don't read enough. But are you saying that there is someone who's ad- advancing the possibility or the, or the proposal to have a a state religion? 
Yeah, there there are people there are people within the intellectual right who call themselves integralists and they believe in a in a more robust a place for uh, religion in the public square, which has been something that lots of conservatives believe is that there should be space in the public square for religion. But they they refer to themselves as either the post liberals or integralists, meaning reintegration. But I guess like I said, my, my my question is, I mean, it's like the Church of England type thing. I'm, I'm just trying to put my mind around. There what are you're some saying. there are some people that would be in support of that. Hmm. Well, I mean, we've seen some on the one of the interesting things to me about the the sort of more big government type Republicans you're you're talking about, Scott, is I think there's some who are uh, kind of well intentioned and actually could play a a good role. Uh, I'm thinking of things around like the family increased paid leave, uh, increased child tax credits, those sorts of things that that would grow the bureaucracy, but are kind of foundations of of what Republicans have thought for a long time about being like every. Republican puts pro family on their yeah. their website, right? And so if we can institute a, a federal paid leave or something like that, so a mom gets to spend more time with their kids, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna cost a lot of money, but you know, the idea of being sort of pro family. But then there's these kind of in that same vein, you keep you keep going, and there's the those who kind of cozied up to the Victor Orbans of the world, right? And and okay, that, but also what if we banned gay marriage too? You know, we, we uh, saw this become popular, I believe it was in, in Italy with the woman who was elected earlier this year, who have these ideas that I think are, are popular to voters and would be popular to suburban moms, potentially a group that Republicans are, are trying to reach out to. But then again, some of the people in this group tend to kind of eke more to the right. And, and I think a lot of people were either turned off by that or, uh, don't see it as, as fitting into the, the conservative worldview. So it'd be interesting to see where these kind of groups and coalitions fit in together. It's not as simple as red and blue anymore. I yeah. mean, it, it's I mean, it's it's just not that simple anymore. Yeah. Let me talk to you about uh, before we get to Georgia about because we mentioned Trump and you mentioned DeSantis. Yeah. About midterms as well as this current conversation and uh, Scott, how are the contenders for the 2024 Republican nomination for president? using the lessons of the midterm election and to what degree are they at all in terms of positioning themselves or how they see themselves as as being the heir apparent here yeah i i interpreted some of the midterm messages americans just want normal boring government you know they're they that's what they want it was a pro-incumbent environment and the incumbents who did well were just basically pitching themselves as kind of normal boring stay the course kind of kind of people and so um I, I assume that's being taken into consideration, you know, by the people. But you know, who want to run for president? How does that impact your thinking in a primary versus your thinking about how you would win a general election? I mean, it wasn't. It was. It was not great for either party. I mean, the Democrats lost the House. The exit polling showed Biden and his policies are not popular. The Republicans didn't do as well as they should have. I mean, there were, there was a lot of of things to be concerned about for both parties. But part of what I took away from it was you don't necessarily have to, you know, you don't you don't have to be dramatic to be successful. In fact, you might want to be the opposite. And it, DeSantis in Florida is a good example. I mean, he the, the the trope on the in the media now is that, oh, he's not very dynamic. He's not very personable. He's not going to be a very good retail campaigner. He's boring. He's awkward. He's well, you know what? Maybe there's something to be said for just getting up and going to work every day, executing on what you said you would do. And the people just respond to, you know, kind of boring. Glenn Youngkin, you know, he is not, you know, a, 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 a dynamic or rock starish type, you know, figure. 
He was, however, a normal kind of sounding person who has operated the Virginia state government in exactly the way he said he would. With a dad vest. Yeah, and, and his numbers have gone up. So right. so to me, that's that's one of the great lessons here. Put me down for boring. McConnell once told this to Trump. back. In fact, I think he told him this at the NRA convention when it was in Louisville in 2016. I think McConnell said something to Trump backstage like, put me down for boring. There's something to be said for that. Like, you know, and, and honestly, part of this is what Biden was promising, right? I'm going to, well, I'm not going to be in the news every day. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pull back on the, the reality is he's been in our face every day. I was going in my head back through the last four or five presidential elections or presidents overall, in terms of how many of them were reactions to the previous president and thinking about how oh, almost always. Oh, exactly. That's, and, 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 and to that, to that pattern, as far as what it means for today, I'm thinking Obama, Basically, being a reaction to you know the wartime presidency of George W. Bush, I'm thinking about Trump certainly being a response to Obama and yeah. going too far. Biden obviously is a response to Trump because yeah. he campaigned on that. So, what is the response to Biden? Well, I mean, I, I think the response is probably something something in the vein of I'm going to I'm going to actually do what he said he was going to do, which is just normalize normalize how we. You know, I mean, the, the whole allure of Biden was, you know, we're, we're exhausted with Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, he makes us anxious every day. He's stressing us out every day. He makes things worse with these constant tweets and pronouncements. And I'm just going to basically put a stop to the drama. Well, I mean, I, I think the Biden administration has been nothing but drama. Look at what's happened on this rail thing before the election. You know, he I, he, I thought it was over. He coll- <laughs> I mean, here's what I think. I think he and the union bosses got together for the purpose of punting this past the election. And now it's not they don't have a deal. And now he's begging Congress to intervene, which it is they do have the power to do that. But I mean think about I mean if tr- it put put the put the personalities back in place. What if Trump had announced a deal to avert a rail strike and then all of a sudden it wasn't it would be a scandal. It would be a national scandal. So I, I think people look at this and say, I thought I thought you were the competent one. I thought you were so I just I don't know. I Sean. I that was how they I'll just pitch, snort. That's how they pitched it. That's how they pitched yeah. the, 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 the the juxtaposition. So I don't know. To me, that that's that's what's gonna happen in twenty four. The reaction to Biden is gonna be I'm actually going to be competent and I am not going to exacerbate all of our country's biggest problems as it relates to the economy. That to me it's a pretty simple pitch. I don't know who has to be convinced and when in terms of who a front runner would be on the GOP primary. I I just get the sense maybe it's it's my own exhaustion. I just don't want to hear about anybody. I just I just want to have it just all go away for a while and and but they they can't do that for money and for other reasons. Well, you're for Warnock. Why would you why would you want to hear about a Republican? <laughs> have you been down there? Have you, you gone down to Georgia to knock it, on doors for Warnock so you can support his presidential campaign after this? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> for, for for new listeners to flyover country with Scott Jennings, I, I made one or two comments. One or two hundred. <laughs> I mean, you've been all over it. What'd you I'm call him, Rapunzel or something? I called him Ralph. 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 <laughs> Rapunzel. <laughs> I just I, I misspoke. Anyway, uh, let's go to Georgia. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, that was a great segue, Joe. The Reverend, well, you brought it up, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Is there? Uh, and I'll I, I, I often drop little, uh, I guess, unnecessary or uh, or or 
Like vignettes? Comments that Nuggets. The, the Scott does not appreciate. Uh, this is an unhelpful comment that I'll make okay. just to start the whole conversation, Scott. Are there Republicans who kind of just, since they've already lost the Senate in the first place, were just just as soon as Herschel Walker lose? Is because he's uh, all the problems he brings. Let John Fetterman be the distraction in the Senate. Let him be the person who takes all the attention for being a whack job, and 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 let's let let Democrats own that. Versus you know letting Herschel Walker in and kind of being the counterbalance to having two whack jobs on either side of the aisle. I don't know. I mean, I I don't think. No, I don't believe that. I mean, I, I think Walker is an underdog in this because he got fewer votes on election day, and so therefore he's got ground to make up. I have no idea. Wait, I, Warnock or Walker? I'm sorry, Walker is yeah, an underdog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Walker's an underdog. He got fewer votes, so I, I've assumed he's he's an underdog in this. I I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, runoffs are strange. Um, well, the just, last time this happened in Georgia, the person who got the fewer votes in won. the— Exactly. Yeah. So, Ossoff sure. got fewer votes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And Purdue almost got there. Right. And uh, yeah, that's exactly right. So I don't know. I I really don't have a feel for for it. I mean, I, I mean, you don't have the argument that control of the Senate's on the line. Now you do have the argument that, you know, if if Warnock wins, it does put the Democrats one step closer to ending the legislative filibuster, which could have far-reaching implications. Which would take Manchin and Sinema are one of them one to of go them. along. Just one of them. One of and them. Joe Manchin is proven to be, you know, an untrustworthy squish. And so, yeah. and so, who knows what he would do? So I, I, I don't know. What do you think, Sean? I mean, I, I'm kind of in the same position. I don't really have anything to add. I, I just think that, you know, what's the what's the calculus? I think it's, it's a question of all who shows up to vote, and there probably were going to be more people uh, energized to show up on uh, election day a few weeks ago uh, than than now, and so record. Early voting yep. in Georgia, mm-hmm. yeah, and Jim they, Crow. So I, I you know, <laughs> no I, water, no water in the lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I assume, I assume there's a dedicated group of partisans in mm-hmm. both parties who are definitely voting, and then, you know, it's that it's that question of the the more infrequent voter. Can you can you get them to show up? You had said on election night, and and subsequently, Scott, that you know, the, a key here would be Brian Kemp, uh, yeah. lending his support and his organization. Do you have you kept in touch with folks in Georgia to know whether or not that actually is happening? It's definitely happening. I've seen Kemp all over the media. Yeah. For one, uh, endorsing and fighting for Walker. Number two, he loaned and rented or whatever his his political organization and his team to the Senate Leadership Fund, uh, which is the McConnell affiliated Senate Super PAC, for the purpose of trying to to, to implant their system into the Walker. Orbit, um, which is a really good one, by the way, because they they built a huge data operation, as I understand yeah. it, from the Kemp people. Yeah. Uh, so so yes, I think there is evidence of that. Now, how persuasive will that be? I don't know. I mean, it, it was interesting. There were some places where, um, you know, very popular Republican governors made endorsements, and it didn't matter at all. And New Hampshire was a case. Sununu endorsed Bolduc up there, and Bolduc got you know trounced. So I I don't I don't know. I think it's better to have Kemp. You know, with his shoulder to the wheel, than not—that's for sure. He's the most popular politician in Georgia, uh, and we should talk about him. I, I mean, I don't know why there isn't a Brian Kemp 2024 discussion going on because this guy has stood up to everybody—the left, the right, Abrams, Trump, corporate America, and the quietly, national media. Quietly, more quiet. I mean, DeSantis has been more, much more forceful and controversial, and the whole migrant—you know—Martha's Vineyard. But Kemp has just been more stable. He, he did interestingly this week launch a federal. 
yeah. to engage, right? engage oh, yeah, in uh, federal races. And so it'd be something to keep your eye on. I oh, did yeah. notice that. Uh, he, he gave an interview exclusively, I think, sit down to CNN with Caitlin Collins this he, week. He did. And uh, they talked a little bit about that. Uh, but I think that that'd be definitely something to keep an eye on uh, with, with a federal pack down there in Georgia for Brian Kemp. Yeah, it'll be interesting, too. Uh, there's really, I don't know, Scott, you mean a four states now that are going to determine the election you know i mean it's not it's not like pennsylvania is not as purple as it used to be florida is not as purple as it used to be ohio is not as purple as it used to be uh and so it's really I mean, what just are we talking about wisconsin, wisconsin georgia Arizo- nevada arizona, arizona yeah basically right? that's what ron brownstein uh, yeah. uh, thinks you know and so maybe a kemp plays better in arizona than a desantis right and so it'll be interesting to see how those guys sort of see what happened in the midterms their popularity i mean you've said this i mean kemp defied all the you know or, or took on all every trump attack possible and came out the other I mean, side remember so. that trump said at one time he had two major priorities beating lisa murkowski in alaska which didn't work and also getting rid of brian kemp and you know uh what, all the winning watching kemp <laughs> i just gotta say i mean yeah. watching him just go through these uh these these pretty big institutions that came after him. I mean, it, it, it's been pretty impressive. And I suspect if you dropped him off in Iowa and let him walk around for a couple of hours, he'd be pretty well received. I don't see either of them as wanting to be number two, but uh, as far as the, the two peas in a pod, a, a Kemp Yunkin ticket would be uh, the definition of, of, of stable, you know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. you know, that's that's a long way down the road. But I, but I, I think the people that you're seeing – get buzz and success right now you know what they have in common they have nothing to do with washington mm-hmm. desantis kemp yunkin i mean these uh i mean these people are governors they've been away from the drama and they win elections and they've been winners speaking yeah. of people they didn't who back have, into anything people who have been mentioned as potential presidential contenders in 2024 who are currently occupying governorships governor andy Bashir, yeah of kentucky who enjoys uh from what I understand, and you folks have seen the polling, I'm sure, that I haven't been exposed to, but uh, apparently uh, popularity, our, our favorability rankings in the uh, mid to upper 50s, a Democratic governor in a in a decidedly Republican state. Uh, for those folks listening outside of Kentucky, in the midterm election that, that was just held, the state house uh, is now 80-20 Republican-Democrat, yeah. and the state Senate is now, I think, 36 to 1 uh, Senate because we have one vacancy with Morgan McGarvey. Thirty six, no, thirty one to six. Oh, what, what did I say? I'm sorry. Thirty six to one. Oh yeah, no, yeah I'm sorry. Yes, Which yes. we prefer. I would, we're not I would like that. Yeah. Is no, that possible? <laughs> I apologize. Yes, you you currently have six yeah. Democrats in the yeah. state Senate. Right. Um, anyway, and 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 thirty one uh, uh, Republican. But with that said, uh, so Andy Bashir is this. You know, uh, he has positioned himself, uh, Scott as a post-partisan governor. He's even made a point during the last uh, General Assembly to, to talk about one piece of legislation as being, he said, no, it wasn't bipartisan. It was nonpartisan. So he's, he's, he's trying to position it this way purposefully. Yeah. Well, he has to. I mean, right. you know, he, he is, I think, I think by virtue of the circumstances uh, under which he's found himself been able to govern in a non-ideological fashion in some ways because of just crisis management 
Um, so that's helped him. Crisis meaning tornadoes in yeah, western flooding, Kentucky, COVID. eastern Kentucky, yeah. uh, flooding, and all that preceded by the COVID. Yeah. Um, and so on the one hand, he's he's had help in cultivating that image. On the other hand, he is saddled with the most unpopular thing you can be saddled with in Kentucky politics, which is being a registered Democrat. And he has to run away from that as much and as often as he can. And so that'll be the challenge for the Republicans uh, in the 2023 election is can you bring him back into being reminding people like this is this guy's the same kind of a partisan Democrat uh, that you don't like and not allow him to run this race in a in a in a nonpartisan or non ideological fashion. I mean, yes, he is a Democrat. And, you know, he vetoed an income tax cut during 40-year high inflation. He's embraced critical race theory. He's embraced biological men competing against women in sports. He is a Democrat. He believes everything that the Democrat Party believes. And so I think that over the course of the next year, year and a half, you're going to see a robust campaign educating Kentuckians that for all this Mr. Rogers video's time that you see, he is a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. Yeah. I mean, that is that is the that is the campaign the Republicans will have to run. I mean, he only won by 5,000 votes in the last election. Since then, I would say his personal image has probably improved while his party's image has gotten worse and worse. I right. mean, uh, so many things have happened. You know, the Republicans have overtaken the Democrats in overall voter registration. You know, Biden is I think Biden is more unpopular in Kentucky than Obama ever was. Uh, and so just the overall Democratic brand. Um, and I think that the Republicans are quite likely to nominate someone who is, you know, basically a likable person. Any of the top three front you know, contenders here, uh, Cameron, Kraft, and Quarles, are all going to be eminently more likable and approachable than Matt Bevin ever was. And so Andy won't have the... You know, he won't have the luck of having of being running against someone who, you know, most people detested. How fractious of a primary is this going to be? Yeah, great question. I mean, I, I assume there's going to be some some tussling. But the, the real question mark is, can the party recoagulate itself after after a potential rough and tumble primary? And we will. We will. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, we will unite behind whoever the nominee is and focus like a laser on beating Bashir. I mean, everyone knows in this state, if you live through the pandemic, when he shut your kid's school down, uh, if he, when he sent state troopers to churches on Easter Sunday, people understand how important beating this guy is in 2023. And Republicans will be united behind whoever the nominee is. Yeah, it, it's vital that, that the candidates who don't win accept it and immediately stay on the team and 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 work together to fund and fight for the party. If if the Republicans are to have a chance, I mean, one thing we learned about the midterms, it's a pro incumbent environment. Just because Kentucky's a Republican state doesn't guarantee you you're going to win the governor's race. And so um it it really will require all hands on deck to beat, you know, a pretty pretty stable incumbent governor. Yeah, you know what else I've I've heard from people who have I think everybody keeps looking at the primary and they're like, "Ooh, it's going to be where people seem to be, you know, adding themselves every week or every month. But that that same sort of thing, Sean, just reiterate, you know, everybody I've talked to has said, but you know what, I'd be happy with all of them. 
and beating Bashir is the most important thing, right? Yeah. There, it doesn't feel like like it, it feels like the right in Kentucky is ready to to have this primary, and it's going to be robust, and you know, the it's going to kind of you know, we're going to weed each other out. But they're happy that this is where the party is. I was, you know, talking to some people just yesterday who said, uh, you know, when I first voted, we were the minority in every basically house, and and we didn't have we couldn't field candidates to run for certain house seats. We couldn't field candidates to run for statewide office and now we've got this robust list we've got people lining up we've got young people we have we'll have a diverse slate almost certainly no matter what and i think republicans are excited that this is where the state of the party is in kentucky it it will be interesting to me um to see how much of a platform driven campaign the republicans can run i mean you know these races for like president and governor i think do require some forward-looking you know this is not not as much this is who I am or what I've done, but where am I planning to take you and how will we get there? And I think part of the part of the thing on Bashir is going to be trying to rekindle the idea of being this nonpartisan or postpartisan governor. See, I did all these things in the last four years. I think one of the ways around that for the Republicans is going to be to put together a forward looking agenda and um and it doesn't have to be you know i don't think it has to be a thousand planks but i think you know at the end of four years under republican governance we will have accomplished the following things if it were me i think one of the biggest things somebody could run on is how am i going to solve the learning loss crisis that andy Bashir and other democrats caused to me, this is the biggest generational challenge, face, one of them facing Kentucky, is we've got this whole group of students out there of all different ages who every year we, we go without a plan. That, you know, it just is a compounding problem. And this is going to be the challenge for the next governor, maybe the next several governors. And so I think if it were me, I'd probably be saying, this is, I'm going to dedicate my time to solving this before it becomes basically you can't reel it in. I think, to me, that's a huge area. Governor Bashir has already identified education as being a major but what does that mean? agenda item for him, and he wants the General Assembly to reopen the budget in a non-budget year. Oh, he's continued to have the same press conference that he's had every year where he attacks Republicans and then doesn't call them to actually achieve any of the agenda like a leader actually would? I'm saying what he said politically. Which is to say that he wants to uh, teacher pay raises. He wants more funding. I, I know, but but it's, it's just throwing money at things. There has to be a plan on this learning loss issue. Yeah, I don't and, disagree and, with you, but I'm I'm saying is is that he, he has, from his perspective, he recognizes that this is an issue. Yeah, he recognizes that it's the only reason, or one of the main reasons, why he was elected in the first place. But there has the to other be, one being that Matt Bevan was his, his opponent. To me, to me, though. If I were prosecuting the case against him on this front, I think you have to force some atonement and some some acknowledgement of responsibility. I mean, Andy is there Bashir, any room for that? Andy Bashir, the teachers unions, the Democratic Party, that that entire cabal of people are to blame for this learning loss crisis. And in my opinion, the only way to move forward is for people who are responsible to be forced to acknowledge their own responsibility. How can I trust you if you say, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run on education without atoning for the mistakes that you made over the last four years? That, to me, it, there's, that's where some Republicans are going to have some room to run. There will be no uh, confession if, 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 or ad, uh, atonement if, if there's a fundamental disagreement with what he would say 
And what most folks in the Golden Triangle would probably say, in Louisville or Lexington in particular, would be saying that he did the right thing. I don't, I don't agree with that. I think most parents are currently looking at what happened to their kids, and they're dealing every single day with this learning loss. Let me say, most press coverage in Louisville and Lexington would say he did the right <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, well, he, he, is, he is in a protective bubble from that. I agree with you. But, but I just think most people who have had to deal with schools and school-age kids over the last few years know full well the damage that was done. And if you look at the data and you look at the reporting on the data now, even the mainstream media is now admitting that the people who got hit the hardest were poor and minority children. Those were the ones who suffered the most. And and so I think if I were if I were constructing sort of an argument for what am I going to accomplish over the next four years, it's basically I'm going to come and rescue these kids that Andy Bashir left behind. I don't want to leave you guys uh, without, as far as handicapping where we are right now with the primary on the Republican side. I mean, you mentioned Daniel Cameron, Kelly Craft, and Ryan Quarles as the presumed frontrunners mm. in this situation. Um, when you have, though, five other candidates out there, yeah, uh, Alan Keck. Of, Keck's the uh, most recent entrant, uh, mayor of Somerset. Young, young mayor of Somerset. Uh, you have Savannah. Savannah Maddox. You mm-hmm. have Mike Harmon. Just generally speaking, from your past experience with that kind of a, mm. a huge horse race, what what are the uh, what, are, what kind of predictions can you make based upon that going in? I mean, there's, there's no predictions to make. No one's run a single advertisement yet, um, and and only a couple of the candidates are going to have you know the the top three will have the resources to do any meaningful advertising as we now see it. I mean, if somebody bursts onto the scene as a self funder or comes up with a huge independent expenditure group that shows up on their behalf. We don't know that yet. Uh, so so there's there's nothing to know yet, um, uh, in my opinion. Th- the most important parameter to keep in mind is we eliminated the runoff provision, so you don't have to get over 40% of the vote in order to get the nomination. So the bigger the primary gets, the fewer votes, in theory, you might need in order to capture the nomination. I will tell you, one of the things we learned in this last midterm is in these crowded, fractured primaries where candidates like, oh, I don't know, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania or Blake Masters in Arizona emerged with, you know, 30% of the vote, it was hard for them to recover. And they didn't recover, which goes back to the point we were making earlier about the need for, for team unity um, and, uh, and, and for everyone to lift up whoever emerges from this thing. seems to me that going into this, and then we'll get to you, Jared, is, is that uh, in that kind of a crowded primary, then Daniel Cameron and Ryan Quarles would have the advantage going in because they have sort of known base constituencies. They have they have people who already know them going. Well, they, in. they've they've gotten votes before, right? And exactly. people yeah. have voted for them before. Right. But I, I think you could make a case, an interesting case for Kraft, Quarles, and Cameron. You know, Cameron is a bona fide political celebrity. He's the most well-known. I suspect if you polled it right now, he'd be right. have the most name ID, and he would be in the lead. Quarles has been elected statewide twice to the state legislature before that. By far has the most governing experience. And Kraft, we've never had a candidate for governor with the with the kind of person Kelly Kraft is and right. the kind of things she's done So, and the kind of resources she can bring to bear. So you, know, you can see the, the angle for each one and why each would be a really credible nominee against Andy Bashir. I mean, they, they're all really incredible people. Sean, I've heard you call it an embarrassment of riches. Right. I think that's true. I mean, we have high-quality people, all very different, different backgrounds, different capabilities, and, and sort of different strong points. But but in, any of them, any of them, I think, 
could put together a legit campaign. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And and just because of virtue of my day to day job, I just do want to say that the Republican Party does not engage in primaries. Like we don't let the staff at the party do not put a finger or a thumb on the scale for anyone. And so, I just want to want to put that caveat out there before we go to Jared. Yeah. Um, we, Sean, you mentioned the embarrassment of riches. This is what kind of the Republican Party is going to be now because the the Democrat Party is is all but extinct here in Kentucky. Do you think the Democrat Party will get involved in this primary, a la the midterms, mm-hmm. and attempt to promote a more quote radical or yeah, try Trump to try to pick a weak nominee? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you yeah. do you see that happening? Considering there's going to be so many, and they only got to get them to maybe twenty two percent. That that's a really interesting question. Because Democrats nationally have unlimited money, yeah. they have unlimited amount Warnock of money. Warnock has like fifty-two million. He's yeah, raised and so money. and so if you want, and they and let's be honest, as immoral as a, as it was, in my opinion, they had success with this yeah. very tactic. Yeah. I mean, they helping helping bad Republican candidates get nominations to go on and lose in general elections. Yep. So would I put it past them? Absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, like to your point, if you have a number of of people running and you need a few low number of votes to win, I mean. Within that number, I mean, you, you could pick out who would be the weakest yeah. opponent or who would have the least capability to constitute a legit campaign. Yeah. And so, yeah, no, I, I, I could easily could easily happen here. Yeah. It still seems to me that I think Kelly Craft obviously has a great resume, has a, many resources, but she's going to have to go pluck votes away from other people. In other words, as you pointed out before, both Daniel Cameron and Ryan Quarles have won statewide races. Ryan twice. Yeah, but and, you know, but but Ryan and Daniel have you know a lot of the same people voted for them both, and so now you know, you're choosing it. But yes, Kelly starts. I think Ambassador Kraft starts with the least name identification. She's never held political office. She's not you know been a household name. That can be solved by advertising. I mean, that's the thing about this race. Nothing has really happened yet because nobody has yet begun. When do we see that? Oh, I, I mean, I would think, I mean, it depends on how much money you have in the bank. I mean, I would certainly think by the first of the year, you could start to see people doing some things. And for the, those folks outside of Kentucky, we have off-year elections. So yeah. it is going to be in 2023 we're talking about coming up here. So the primary is just in May. And I it mean, could so be, it's soon. you know, and the filing deadline, Sean, is early January. Correct. Um, so, you know, it could be once the field is set. You see, but but some of that's dependent upon what resources you have, and this is where Kraft has just a huge advantage. You know, given her personal uh, ability to bring resources to bear, she's already proven she's raised a ton of money in her first finance report. Has the endorsement of James Comer? Has uh, Congressman Comer's endorsement? So she's she's put together a legitimate campaign already. And then the other wild card would be: Do any of these candidates attract an independent expenditure group? Mm-hmm. to come in on their behalf you know do four or five big donors decide they love daniel cameron and they show up or ryan quarles does kelly have that kind of national network that would foster uh, uh that kind of so not only do i think you'll have candidate advertising spending pretty soon but the 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 idea that an ie group could come in i think it's very real and uh and you know then it then you get into the tactical question of who's going to attack who or who feels like you know, they, they need to push someone down in order to rise. I mean, when you have that many candidates, it's like a very complicated chess game. Filing deadline would be very interesting to watch you. Before we go, guys, a little scene red herd of this of this past week. Jared, do you have something for you? You're still pulling up on, on your laptop here. Can we, st- can we yeah, start with I got it. I got it. You got it? All right. Yes. Yeah. A uh, piece in the uh, Wall Street Journal opinion, uh, Dr. Wilfred Riley, who's a professor here at 
Kentucky State University. I know him. I met yes. that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I've had him speak at some lunches I do. Very nice guy, very sharp guy. He, he wrote a lot about critical race theory over the last few years. Um, but he, uh, one of his kind of specialties is hate crime hoaxes. He, he wrote a book about this sort of uh, Jussie Smollett type stuff. In which, Juicy Smollett, yes, yeah, as yeah. Dave Chappelle would say. Um, <laughs> but these stories, Bubba Wallace and NASCAR, in, in which mm-hmm. we, we hear so much about when they happen, and it's this sort yeah. of like hate crime scare, and then uh, after the investigation's done, turns out absolutely nothing happened. Um, he, he has a new piece, a new opinion piece. Facts ruin a narrative about hate crimes at HBCUs. Another interesting story, again, I think if people remember the bomb threats that happened at the HBCUs, uh, investigation into it turned out it was just like one kid prank calling a bunch of colleges yeah. across the country. But he is the only person I've ever seen who sort of documents these hate crime hoaxes. Uh, and so I wanted to, to give a shout out to Professor Riley, who has written a book about this and has a new piece about this. It's very interesting and just, you know. Uh, we hear so much about the the act, and then the investigations tend to be quiet. So, interesting piece today in the Wall Street Journal. John? Well, um, it is the worst time of the year for one particular reason, which is that it is the time of year where people post their Spotify wrapped <laughs> playlists. And so I have seen a lot of people posting their playlists saying that, oh, I have spent this much time on Spotify this year, and here are the top songs etc and so forth what i find Sp- it annoying what a spotify <laughs> Go ahead. i wish you were joking it, if you get something on your shirt you're oh. able to oh yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> I've seen those. like a tide pen yeah like a tide to go pen <laughs> anyways i find this posting of these things annoying um is most, it is why? it more or, or is it but is it, is it as annoying as the wordle postings <sighs> you know that's a tough call joe <laughs> oh you know what i did for the first time this weekend I muted a word on Twitter. You did? I did. Oh, nice. Joe Rogan muted it. Why? What? Oh, it's just what? everywhere. It's always he's always trending for nothing. It's like Joe Rogan. I, I, You're hijacking Sean's I know. Uh, whatever. Sean. Anyways, it, Sean's my, got several more minutes to build up to what it was. Go ahead. Well, my, my main problem is, is why do people use Spotify? It is. It is not a good product. Sean, this is not, Apple Music is much better. This is not what grinds my gears. This is scenery. <laughs> This is scene rare. <laughs> what are you doing? Well, you, you go. You go. <laughs> but he's talking about what he's seeing on Spotify. I'm reacting on... to what I've seen. Yes. I'm sorry. I thought that was the goal of the scene sorry, Red I heard. I thought this was America. <laughs> Speaking of which. Back in my day, scene Red heard meant something. That's right. Speaking of which. I thought this was America. This was America and not Iran. Okay? Speaking of which, I want to. This My scene Red heard is Tyler Adams, the captain of the U.S. men's national team, being asked by an Iranian uh, newspaper reporter, journalist, yeah. quasi-journalist, and ab- quasi. about, about the uh, – fr- and the reason I say Iranian is because the journalist first says, you mispronounced our country. And then he asks him about uh, about racial issues in the, in the U.S. But when I want to hear Tyler Adams' response here to this reporter. All right. You support the Iranian people, but you're pronouncing our country's name wrong. Our country is named Iran, not Iran. Please, once and for all, let's get this clear. Second of all, um, are you okay to be representing a country that has so much discrimination against black people in its own borders? And uh, we saw the Black Lives Matter movement uh, over the past few years. My apologies on 
the mispronunciation of your country. Um, yeah, that being said, you know, there's discrimination uh, everywhere you go. Um, you know, one thing that I've learned, especially from living abroad in the past years and uh, having to fit in in different cultures, is that in the U.S. we're, we're continuing to make progress uh, every single day. I grew up in a, in a white family with an obviously an African-American heritage and background as well. So um, I had a little bit of uh, different cultures and I, I was very, very easily able to assimilate in different different cultures. So, um, you know, not everyone has that, that ease and uh, the ability to do that. And obviously it takes longer to understand. And through education, I think it's it's super important. Like you just educated me now on the pronunciation of, of your country. So, um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a process. I think as, as long as you see progress, uh, that's the most important thing. I don't watch soccer, but I, I watched this guy on Twitter. I thought it was just a very responsible, uh, proud to be an American type of moment. Did you, yeah, classy. Did, did you call him a quasi-journalist because he doesn't work for Russia today? <laughs> <laughs> Getting chippy in here now. Scott, what's your scene right heard? You know, mine is I'm also... I'm choosing to not, not respond to Sean the way that McConnell doesn't re- use Trump's name. Mine is quasi-soccer related. Um, <laughs> and Quasi-soccer, uh, quasi whatever. Mine, mine is uh, um, has to do with China. And the Chinese government is currently unstable because people are in full-blown revolt against the zero-tolerance COVID policies in China. There's protests. There's calls for the government to fall, et cetera, et cetera. They're showing the World Cup in China. And I guess the Chinese people were seeing people in the stands wearing yeah. Yeah. who were not wearing masks. Right. So now, I guess, based on what I've read, see, read, seen, read, heard, based on what I've read, you... They are censoring the shots of the crowd, so they're basically taking in the feed, and then they're they're like <laughs> censoring, so they're they're cutting out all the crowd shots, so that people in China won't be exposed to the fact that every other country in the world is essentially living in you know a, a normal life except for them. I, I find this to be completely and totally. Uh, incredible. And then the other part of my scene red heard is the absolute weak and pathetic response of the Biden administration when asked about their views of the, the protests going on in China. Just pathetically weak. So mine all has to do with some some of it revolved around soccer, but just what's going on in China, our government's response to it. I just I find all this to be really incredible. I will just say that Jared and I were the only two people that referred to something that happened in this country in America during our scene red herd while you all were <laughs> traversing the globe with your comments. I'm sorry, I'm supporting freedom loving people who are being having you know, soccer No, it's great. I love that. Soccer games. I love it. Censored. It's your podcast. It's right. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings brought I also to you by... Have, I have hiring and firing authority. Fly See, notice Kevin's with Scott Jennings <laughs> brought to you by Spotify. Spotify are, is, your, is your safe alternative to Tide Pens. Scott, take us home. Uh, what are we going to do next week? We got to... There's nothing going on. Nothing. We, well, we, we spent an hour right now with nothing going on, so we're fine yeah, next week. We got to... I don't know. I feel like we need a guest lecturer. Who should we get? Oh, somebody was mentioned today that I think is going to have an important role in the new Congress. Jamie Comer. Jamie Comer. That would should, be good. Oh, you know what? I asked Jamie Comer the other day if he would come on, and he said, yes. I will try to get us Jamie Comer here in the month of December. By the way, Congressman Comer, friend of the pod, 
He's been all over the TV. All yeah. over it. I yeah. mean, he's on Meet the Press this weekend. Yeah. Did a great yeah. job. He's he's all over. So we got a bona fide celebrity on our hands with uh, Comer, and uh, maybe by the time we do this next week, we'll have more. Uh, we'll, we'll know a little bit more about who's going to be the Speaker of the House. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to shake out. But he I do was know, asked about that on Meet the Press. Yeah, but I know Comer is going to be in the in a good yeah. spot no matter how. But anyway, thank you for listening to Flyover Country. If you listen to it on Spotify, we're apologies for <laughs> insulting you, Sean. <laughs> if you listen to it on Apple, I regret nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but we're uh, grateful for we're the get deep platform. <laughs> we're grateful. Uh, yeah, we're grateful for the. Uh, uh, for all the comments, I was uh, standing in line. I want to tell a quick story. I was standing in line at Top Golf this week, uh, which opened in Louisville, and a man walked up to me and said, "I love the pod," and proceeded. I didn't know him. Just a stranger. Just God. a stranger. Oh, wow. I that, was there with my was, kids. That was me. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, we definitely recognize you. I, but he he couldn't have been happier with with the fact that our podcast comes out every week and he just said quote keep giving them hell and so uh i I think we i think we're doing it so was he talking specifically about joe (laughs) it was great it was a great comment so we're appreciative thanks for listening take us out jared flyover country with scott jennings is a production of bluegrass media lab coming to you from the heart of middle america louisville kentucky If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.